Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. And I'm Madeline Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of Studs Turkle. Studs Turkle, you say, huh? And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me the chance to check in with good, hardworking people. And take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Yeah, man. Welcome back to the podcast, my love. As I recall, last time you were on was for the last Highlights episode, right? Yeah. And guess what we're doing today? Another Highlights episode? It's been a whole season since you've been on the podcast. You're right. There's something wrong. <laughs> yeah, I've been wanting to get you on the podcast more. I'm really happy that you're back with me. So we're going to do two highlights episodes for this season. This episode here is going to focus on the front half of the season, the first four episodes. And then in two weeks, we'll come back and dive into the back half of the season. Can you remind our dear listeners what this season has been devoted to? Uh, weren't you talking to a bunch of different types of teachers all season? You got it. And during the first four episodes, I was talking to teachers who work where? At my school. And what's the name of your school? JFK. And what does JFK stand for, my love? John F. Kennedy School. Do you have any fun facts about John F. Kennedy? I know lots of fun facts about John F. Kennedy. His middle name was Fitzgerald. He was president. And he's not alive anymore. And he had a lot of siblings. And someone in his family bought a giant statue of a bear for our school. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. There's a huge statue of a bear from... A bear, not beer. That would be your dream, though. Yeah, it's true. I totally said that wrong, and you're totally right. That would be my dream. And of course, you know all this stuff because you go to the John F. Kennedy School, right? Yeah. What grade are you in? Third. Scale of one to ten, one being third grade's the worst, ten being third grade's the best. How's third grade treating you? Seven. Seven. Yeah? Yeah. Seven? Yeah, seven. What do you like most about third grade? Hmm. Hmm. On Thursday, we get to skip two hours of school because we get to go to swimming. But what I don't enjoy is that the only exercise we actually get in swimming is shivering. (laughs) Is the water cold or is the air cold or both? The air is cold because the water is warmer than the air. We'll actually talk to one of your sport teachers who brings you swimming at the end of this episode, right? Yeah, Nate. Yeah, Nate's great. You don't have to rhyme it, Daddy. (laughs) All right, fair enough. I won't rhyme it. And in addition to sharing an excerpt of my conversation with Nate today, we're also going to be sharing some excerpts from my conversations with three other JFK educators. Do you remember who they are? I'm pretty sure. One is the music teacher. One is Tamara, the lady who helps people with feelings and stuff. And then the other one... Oh, and uh, I remember Kate. She teaches entrance class, which is like kindergarten. You remember them all. 
Yeah, well, I had some reminders. <laughs> fair enough, buddy. Fair enough. Uh, do you have a preferred order in which we listen to these? Who should come first? Let's start there. Well, I was thinking Tamara. Okay. To um, Kate. Okay. And then I think the music teacher. Do you remember his name? Uh, Joseph. Very good. And so we'll end off with Nate then? Yeah, then we'll end off with Nate then. Cool. I'm in. So we've got four all-star educators from the Kennedy School represented on this season six highlights episode. And if you, my dear listener, want to be an all-star yourself, if you're a loyal listener, or if you like to seize opportunities to support independent creators, I'd like to urge you to head over to patreon.com studs. You'll find the link in the show notes. As always, I promise to keep studs free for you. Right, Madeline? Yeah. And it's not like I'm going to pressure you to drop your hard-earned bucks on my podcast, right? Of course. Who does that? But if you dig studs and you want to do your part to keep it going, I offer some pretty, pretty, pretty cool rewards for studs patrons. You should check it out. What is it? The rewards? Yeah. You got to go over to patreon.com slash studs to check it out. But I will tell you about one little reward that I happily gift all my patrons. What is it? I give them all a shout out on an episode. And it just so happens that I owe a shout out today to a new patron of the podcast who you, my love, happen to know pretty well. I'll give you a hint. She's the mama of one of your friends, and the friend's name starts with a Q. Wait, 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 hold it. Kim Douglas is the patron? That's right. Your buddy Quinn's mom, Kim Douglas, has been a loyal listener, an empathic ear, and a supporter of this podcast since it began. Quinn, if you are listening to this, tell your mom she's a very good patron. <laughs> she is a very good patron in every way, shape, and form. Indeed, Mighty Rose, I'm proud to say that she's a patron of this here podcast. And if you, my dear listener, dig this project, you too are cordially invited to become a patron. No pressure, of course, right? Yeah. But I'm always grateful for any support you might want to lend. I'm going to keep the thing free, no paywall, no matter what. And look, if you're not in a position to patronize the project, there are other ways you could show support, right? Yeah. Tell the people what they could do. You hit the following button thingy and the subscribe button thingy, or you just tell other people about the podcast. You got this thing all figured out. Well, I am a professional studs co-host. You are the professional studs co-host. You're the best of the bestest, baby. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So I really loved my conversation with Tamara, and I have to confess it was really hard to select highlights. There were so many to choose from. She's pretty awesome, right? Yeah, I know Tamara. She's awesome. Yeah, but I did have to make some decisions, so I made them. And here are three short excerpts of what I think was a challenging but deeply inspiring conversation with my esteemed colleague and your pal, Tamara Faber. Mm 
So, Tamara, you spent more than the first decade of your career as an inclusion specialist. You worked in special education. And I know that in part because of your humility, in part because of your vulnerability, you learned a lot. What did you learn about social and emotional development that you wish our listening audience knew? The timeline. I I think the books indicate everything by months, years, where kids should be. And I think it's not as by the books as we're led to believe. And I think when kids have the opportunity to grow and develop at their own pace and are encouraged to do so, that's when we see the biggest growth. But when they're held to this norm and always compared to where they should be as opposed to where they are social, emotionally, academically, um, they get stuck. And then we have these anxiety issues. And I feel like that's something that is more predominant in today's age because of this need to stick to a schedule of development. And I think if we can just rein it back a little, pull it back and say, okay, to each their own and support and encourage all kids where they're at, I think that's where we'll see the most growth. Do you find yourself hopeful at all that the pandemic might have that effect, which is to say the schedule just got thrown off for, you know, a year and a half. We're not done yet. All of like the standards and the benchmarks that are measurable, (laughs) like they just can't be held to with the same religious fervor that we tried to hold to them for a couple decades. Is it possible that like the special education model is just going to have to apply to all of us (laughs) for the foreseeable future? If, if we don't do that, I feel like we haven't learned from the experience of the last year and a half. And I feel then we're doing everyone a disservice because special ed aside, all kids, all adults have gone through this together. And one of the biggest lessons I would hope we could walk away having learned from this is that we need to step back. We need to look at really what's important. And then we need to meet kids where they're at and help them get there. And sticking to the benchmarks and and the assessments that were allotted for this time of this year, I think there'll be a devastating waterfall of chaos if, if for emotional health of kids, never mind the academic growth. I think there's a potential for just real disconnect academically, social, emotionally, if if kids are held to that same standard. Yeah, I mean, we have to fully embrace. Yeah. That mantra of meeting kids where they're at. Instead of dragging them towards standard B3A, because that's what we do in September. I right? think that we need to relook at the standards. Oof. <laughs> Not that I want <laughs> to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, perhaps the collective trauma that we have endured will be the alarm bell waking us up to the obvious fact that the standards-based model, to the extent to which we use it as dogma, it has a real baneful effect on all students, particularly more vulnerable ones. 
right? Absolutely. So hopefully all of these so-called regular education teachers will, you know, <laughs> take some notes on this and apply some of the lessons that you've fought for and learned to their so-called regular classes. So you had mentioned growth mindset, and I love the term growth mindset. And one of my guests on the first season of this podcast, she's a a fitness coach. She was talking about this book by Carol Dweck called Growth Mindset. And I was so inspired by what she had said that I picked it up and I gave it a read. And on my best days, I'm a growth mindset devotee. Can you talk a bit about what it means to have a growth mindset and how you foster growth mindset in your work as a counselor? So many of the students that I work with, for whatever reason, have a really negative self-image, whether it's based on whatever's happening at home or at school. And... Where they're at when they come to me is I can't, I, I will never be able to, I'm not smart, I'm not good enough. And so much of our work and our time together is reframing those thoughts and those mental bricks that are weighing them down. And deconstructing what it is that 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 has really put them in this place of feeling just defeated all the time. So growth mindset uses this word yet. And that's something that we focus on and 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 teaching kids that yes, okay, I can't do this now, or I can't do this yet. And what can I do to eventually get there? So it's it's recognizing that yes, it's okay to not be able to do this now. And yes, it's okay to not be the best or even in the middle of whether it's my multiplication facts or whatever it is that they're feeling really down about. To take that and turn it into something that yes, I'm not there now, but with growth mindset, I can turn this into what I need to do to get there eventually and be okay with that. So how do you do that exactly? Can you walk me through the process of taking a third grader who comes to you every week and every week, let's say he comes to you feeling defeated, like math has got this kid down and it's wrapped up in other things. It's wrapped up in friendships. It's wrapped up in support. He may or may not be getting at home. Kid comes to you having failed yet another math test, dejected, really feeling down on himself. How do you help to bring this young man towards a humble sense of optimism and a growth mindset? There's some curriculum out there that we work with. It's by no means scripted, but it's it follows sort of a step-by-step Yeah, walk me along the steps, will you? So we start by identifying things that we can and can't control. So what is in our means of being able to control and what can we not have? What do we have no say over? The weather and things like that. But I can control how much sleep I get. I can control the food that I eat. 
and recognizing that just in life, there are things that we have control over and we don't have control over. We also find someone famous. We have some names that we can pick from or we can look for somebody that we're interested in and we look for their story and I have them research their struggles and what they learned through those struggles to then say, hey, look, there's people that are that have made it, that have had some pretty big setbacks, and they were able to do it. So through modeling of some sorts, and then we work on mantra building. What is a mantra? What what is it? What does it mean when we have negative self talk, and how can that change once we are changing the vocabulary in our own head? And then we go back to planning. Okay, so this is what we're feeling really not good at. What are the steps we need to take? We ladder it. What do we need to do to make sure we're moving in the right direction to gain the skills we need to be successful with X, Y, or Z? Can you give me an example or two of some of the best mantras that you've heard young people develop for themselves? So a lot of them are very simple. I can do it. And and then some are pretty special. I have one girl who... who her mantra was, I'm brave, I'm beautiful, I'm smart. And she'd repeat that in her head and I'd, she'd leave my office and she she seemed to be a new kid, at least for that moment. And <laughs> even if we started over again the next week, it was a little bit easier each time to, to believe it. first thing I have to do is relationship builds. I need the kids to feel that they are in a safe space. So we do that by building time into our time together to just have fun, making sure that I focus on what their interests and things that they like to do or are interested in doing are the forefront of our conversation for our first several sessions. And I pull from that information if I'm finding we're up against a roadblock and not moving forward, I'll tie it back to roadblocks. Isn't that the name of the game, I think? Or Minecraft or whatever it may be. And we play games, very low stress, a little bit of competition. You know, I like to to call myself the Uno champion of the White House and kids try (laughs) to claim that title from me. Um, So I, I, I think... The hardest part is finding a balance between that relationship building and getting to the work. That's probably the hardest part. And, and in terms of keeping kids engaged, um, if they don't feel that they are comfortable in my space or that they can trust me as a, as a person, we can't even start and I won't have their attention. So building it around the kid. I hear you when you say that, and I know how difficult it must feel if you can't successfully create a space for you and the young person to engage wholeheartedly, but it must happen. And so I wonder if you could talk about what it's like when, for whatever reason, you and the young person can't manage to connect and develop trust. Yeah. And that has happened where I'm like, you know what, I've, I've tried this. We haven't connected. It's, it's not working. And that's where we look at other resources within our school, other adults that maybe have had success in creating those relationships. And then I work together with those individuals to help them provide whatever support they feel comfortable with. Cause I'm not the best fit for everybody. 
And yeah. I've experienced that a handful of times and it's, it's really hard. Um, I think some of it is um, potentially a language issue, especially at the younger, the, the, the very young students that we have in entrance class, which is our kindergarten equivalent and first grade, some of our German mother tongue students who really are tied to that social emotional language of German. Um, I think it could just be a comfort issue. I tend to have some success with working around that issue, but but when it's just like a personality issue, those are the hardest to swallow. And I just feel like I, I can't help. <laughs> yeah. On a loosely related note, intellectually, I fully understand that hurt people hurt people. And I also understand that kids will be kids. But I wonder what it's like for you when a student who is hurting people with some frequency comes to your office and you're aware that this young person is creating a lot of pain in the lives of other young people. I mean, I know you stay professional and you do your work, right? But how do you navigate your feelings around that and to create a useful language and a growth mindset in a kid who's been for some time been the cause of so much pain. What really needs to happen is that that student, that child needs to have an opportunity to really have a place to just reflect. And when we talk about kind of turning the table a little and asking them to sit in the seat of another person, and walking through, through that experience, I've had the most success with that. I can't necessarily long-term say that it's been super successful, but at least in the moment to have that opportunity of self-reflection and taking a, a moment to recognize what it might feel like to have been on the receiving end of whatever it is that's happening is really important to do. And I think, again, allowing a student to come and feel that they can have that experience is it's, it's that relationship building that has to happen. They need to feel respected and they need to feel loved and they need to feel like they belong to be put in that vulnerable position of saying, Oh yeah, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it takes time and it, it is hard because there are some kids that have made a reputation for themselves and, talking with them about how often a reputation will precede them in anything they do moving forward and and helping them navigate what they can do to change that yeah. and empowering them and changing their own narrative. It's like with teachers and parents having these hard conversations. It's it's another hard conversation. You have lots of hard conversations, <laughs> don't you? Yeah. I yeah. hope this isn't one of them. It's, uh, <laughs> No, so far, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just a snapshot of my conversation with Tamara. I don't think you've heard that whole conversation, have you? All I heard was your side of the conversation with your headphones on. <laughs> <laughs> you remember you got to ask Tamara some questions on that podcast. I Oh, yeah, I did. And if you've only heard these excerpts, 
of my conversation with Tamara, I would have to urge you to go back and listen to the whole thing, if only to hear my beautiful daughter, Madeline Rose Lazar, ask some questions of our guest, Tamara. Right? Yeah. I'm beautiful? Thank you. (laughs) You are beautiful. You are beautiful. To me, you're the most beautiful person in the world. Hey, you know I could sit around and talk about how beautiful you are all day long, but we gotta keep this train rolling. Remind me, who did you say the next clip should be from? I think it should be from Kate. Right. And remind our dear listeners what Kate does for a living. She teaches entrance class, and entrance class is pretty much kindergarten. Kate spoke really poetically about community and patience. Community Kate. That's funny you should say that. I actually named the episode Kate Creates Community or some such. Great minds think alike, and ours do also. Wait, we don't have great minds? (laughs) All right. Let's hear from Kate. Yeah. So I get this sense, both in listening to you and in thinking about my education and my job and my daughter's education, that so much of your success and your work is defined by your ability and your willingness to create communities where young people feel comfortable and thus feel willing to be vulnerable so that they could learn and grow and develop. I wonder if I could urge you to talk a little bit about how you do that. How do you create that climate? Yeah, I mean, it takes time. And with every new school year, I'm always just really ready for that short period of time where you meet new people and they meet you and you know you don't trust each other yet. Yeah, You know that you'll get to that point but you got to make it happen. And those first few weeks, you have to be patient and it takes time. So the first way is to have each child feel purposeful. For example, I make sure that all 18 or 20 of my students have a classroom job. And it seems like a really small thing, maybe to be the person to turn off the lights or to be first in line or to be the quiet monitor or whatever. But if Each child has a job and a purpose that they know that they're going to do. And they know that all of their classmates have a job and a purpose that lasts for a week. It's just a really easy way to kind of get everyone on board. One of those jobs is usually the class star, I call it. And at the end of every week in first and second grade, we give the star compliments So no one has to give a compliment, but just at the end of the day before recess on on Friday, I have to model it so they don't just acknowledge the person's t-shirt or their hair or something like that. (laughs) We try to think of a specific example of what we really value about that person or an experience that you had with that person that made you feel good. And so I try to get them as specific as a seven or eight year old can be. And usually it starts off with a lot of modeling. The compliments are usually, I really like the way you clean up. Like if I model that, for example, for a little (laughs) while, but even just for a kid to hear, I'm really happier in my class. That's one of the most popular compliments. Yeah. Um, I really liked when you helped another student put on his shoes or, or whatever it is. By giving the compliment, you feel good and you feel more connected to the class because you're automatically connecting with another person. And then of course that person feels amazing. 
So Kate, while a fair amount of your work is wrapped up in teaching, reading, and writing, and biculturalism and bilingualism, you're really expected to do much more than that. You're expected to teach the whole child, as they say. Now, all teachers, but especially early years teachers, seek to do just that. They seek to teach more than just math and literacy. What does it mean to you to teach the whole child? And how do you do that? Teaching the whole child would mean to teach not just the academics, but also the social and emotional skills that one needs to feel secure and like a full person and confident and so forth. And of course, in early childhood and probably throughout, but I only know early childhood, all of these things are related. I think we talked about this a little bit earlier. You can't learn to read if you're feeling emotionally or socially shut down or unable to process your emotions or deal with others socially. So, I mean, I spoke a little bit about how important building community and recognizing individual strengths are to getting kids to have a social awareness. But then there's also just the day-to-day emotions that tiny children are dealing with. In entrance class, for example, the first weeks of school, three kids might come in crying because they miss their mom because some of them have just turned five, for example. So just kind of giving kids really explicit strategies or reassurances for how to process and deal with sadness. Like you'll see your mom in a couple hours and not brushing off that they're not going to see mom, but just kind of helping them just day by day understand this is inevitable, that you just kind of have to accept this. That's part of school readiness. You have to say goodbye and helping them process those emotions that maybe can come out in a bigger way at home. But in school, you need to kind of be part of the group and you need to find ways to control your anger, for example. Each one of them are learning how to interact with other kids. And I have to explain this to parents as well. It very often happens on the playground that like John will hit Max. You have to help Max understand that John is dealing with his own sense of problems. And yeah, just to help kids understand that misunderstandings are real and that it really is a misunderstanding and they can still be friends after they fight. I mean, things that would be obvious to an adult some adults are not necessarily <laughs> obvious to, to children, and they actually have to be explicitly taught that. So that's part of part of teaching the whole child, the social and the emotional skills. And then, of course, just beyond academics are working with your hands, working with your voice, singing, for example, doing, doing art project is also kind of not necessarily academic, but you know, singing can be almost spiritual or just this other other way of expressing yourself that's not necessarily academic. So I would also consider that to be teaching the whole child. Would you be so kind as to offer me some insight into how you are able to empathically grapple with the full range of emotions of 20 five or six-year-old kids, because it sounds to me like it could be very loud, (laughs) 
overwhelmingly stressful and that it might even take a toll on you. Your work requires you to deal with some real big feelings, including your own. I guess I just want to know how you do that. I can say that it is much easier to do as a teacher than as a parent. So I could understand how you'd be asking that question, being a parent of a, of a young child. Several parents actually ask me that question yeah. <laughs> on a regular basis. But when you're present and you have a very clear structure to your day, the students know what's expected of them. They know that you respect them. Then somehow dealing with their outbursts or their insecurities becomes much easier. If you have a kid that's constantly having an emotional outburst, you have a little distance from them as a teacher and you can see that that behavior is some kind of communication. Maybe he's not secure in his friendships. Maybe he wants to show me that he's smart or she. So you have to kind of learn to read their behavior and also kind of have some sort of detachment to make sure that you're not taking it personally, which somehow for me is very easy to do with my class of children, not as easy to do with colleagues or my own family. I, I don't know why. But I think it makes sense why. You turn it on for that day. So like I've had mornings as a parent where my kids are literally driving me crazy. You go into school completely exasperated from that. But then you somehow find a way to turn it on as a teacher. Like, you know that you're going to have kids. They're going to come to you in the beginning of entrance class that might have just had the same battles with their parents. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you have to take them where they are and deal with each kid. One thing that was a big change for me teaching entrance class as opposed to first and second grade is any given year, I'll have a kid that will just cling to papa or mama and not let go in the morning. <laughs> What do I do? I have 17 other kids there and parents making judgments on me about how like their kid feels unsettled because this other kid is screaming or how do, how do I respond to that? So you just have to take it in the moment yeah. and, and kind of take them by the hand or make Papa or Mama carry the kid into the class. Listen, as a, as, <laughs> as a parent of exactly that kid... For longer than I care to admit, I have no answers <laughs> whatsoever. But the issue you raise there begs a question that I hope you don't mind. Because part of what you're charged to do in your work is to socialize young people to be prepared to be institutionalized for the next 12 or 16 years of your life. Neither of us are institutionalists. Right. But both of us seem almost strangely committed to this institutionalization process. And the fact is that not everyone's ready for school just because they happened to have turned five. And I know that you and I have some deeply rooted concerns with all that. <laughs> yeah. But for now, I just want to know how you work to create like a valuable and warm and welcoming experience for those kids too, right? For the kids who just 
don't want to be there. You you have to find a way to make them want to be there. And I, I've never had a situation where you can't eventually make that happen by showing them respect for who they are and their interests and giving them opportunity to show respect for you. It can take a while to build that relationship. Like I said, like I'll go home the first two weeks almost crying thinking, <laughs> when am I going to get this kid on board is how I think about it. But if you greet them with a smile every day, you don't take things personally, you have high expectations for them. Like you don't just let them get away with having an outburst or whatever without addressing it with them in a respectful way once they've calmed down. Then unless they have an extreme disability, there are some kids that have special situations or disabilities where they need a a one-on-one type of a situation or a different kind of school. But for most kids, whether they're on the spectrum or not, I, I think it's our responsibility to create space for them. And this is the problem that I have with several institutions is it can happen within individual classrooms and it does, but how those kids are talked about and addressed and dealt with once they move beyond my classroom or whoever's classroom is the challenge. Like, so I guess your question is how to prepare those kids for the next, <laughs> the next step outside of my classroom. I mean, I would want to put that on you to yeah. like, I think every teacher has to do their thing the years that they have those kids. I mean, there are some kids that can't sit still from morning circle, for example, So you let those kids fidget. You can't change a kid immediately. It's a series of day by day, like really slow types of interactions. So in November, I will correct a kid and say, look, it's, you got to sit with us where we're doing this together. But on day one, if that kid is kind of fidgeting and turns backwards and they're not being too disruptive, then you can only take them where they are. You can't make them just be that kid that's really school ready if, if they're not. You have to recognize that it's going to be a slow process with some kids. You need to show them that you expect a lot from them and you and you know that they're ready. But if they're not ready, then you got to help them. <laughs> yeah. Your patience is enviable. I respect it. I admire it. I wish I could get it to carry over as a parent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and me both, sister. <laughs> Did you just call Kate's sister? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She's not actually my sister, but you know that. Yeah. You only have a brother. I do. I wonder if he's listening to this. Shout out to Brad Lazar. You're all right, kid. He's not a kid. Kate's not my sister. Uncle Brad's not a kid. You speak the truth, buddy. Wait, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Speaking the truth or being my buddy? Speaking the truth and being your buddy. I don't know. I'd say speaking the truth is probably a good thing. Being my buddy... Mm, Must be good. I mean, being someone's buddy is good. I don't know. I'm not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, you're not a cup of tea. (laughs) Alright, alright. Listen, again, we gotta keep the train rolling. Dr. Joseph Curtis is my esteemed colleague in the high school. He's the choral director, he's a veteran instructor, and he's at the top of his game. I really loved being in conversation with him. Just like with Tamara and Kate, it was exceedingly difficult 
to choose clips to share with you in this highlights episode, but you gotta do what you gotta do. So I picked three. Enjoy these excerpts of my conversation with Dr. Joseph Curtis. Can I hear them? Yeah, you wanna stick around? Yeah. All right, cool, here we go. Here we go. I, I want to know how you structure a choir class. I want to get a sense of like how the class starts, if there's a daily ritual of sorts. Can you kind of walk us through the day-to-day, the class-to-class of your teaching practice? Absolutely. I love this question. Thanks. We have been, as you well know, in a pandemic situation for nearly a year and a half now. And this situation has wreaked havoc on music programs and especially on choirs. And so thinking to the normal routine that one of my choir rehearsals entails brings me so much joy because I've missed it so much over the past year and a half. So what happens in a rehearsal? And there is a routine. Students walk into the room. They come in and the choir in the last few years has been typically between 80 and 100 students. So that's a lot of people coming into the room (laughs) at the same time. (laughs) I'd just like to give our listeners a a sense of this. Like, let's let them pause on that for a moment. We're talking about 80 to 100 high school kids in the room. Yeah. All right. We've let that settle now. (laughs) Carry on, please. And it's wonderful having these students in the same room. So... Anybody that's ever worked with high school students knows about volume levels. (laughs) (laughs) So they come into the room and it's noisy and it's such a happy noise. They're all talking to each other. They're just chatting about their days. Maybe they're complaining. I don't know. But to me, I'm usually standing near the door or sitting at the piano. It sounds so happy this joyous chatter as the students are coming in. And sometimes in the beginning of a school year, it takes a little while to get this next part of the routine down, but maybe a month in, everybody's got it. So at some point I will go to the piano and I will play a chord. And that chord is a signal. Everybody stops talking. Right now, in the middle of your sentence, stop talking because we're going to transition from talking to singing. And that chord then flows into our warm-up routine. I'll use different warm-ups at each rehearsal, just getting the voice ready to sing. It's kind of analogous to stretching before you're going to go out to run, getting those muscles loosened up and warmed up. So... I'm sitting at the piano and I'm leading the students through warm-ups and I'm talking to them about vowel placement and I'm talking to them about breathing and all the aspects that go into good singing. But one of my favorite moments is really this transition from the happy chatting to the happy singing. When everybody's doing the same thing together and there's a unity that comes into the group. So this warm-up session might last six to 10 minutes. It should actually be longer, but our rehearsals are only 45 minutes. So we have to um, be careful with our time. Then the next thing will be announcements. And I try to keep the talking part of rehearsal as brief as possible, but there are always some things that need to be discussed. Upcoming performances, rehearsals, performance outfits, 
etc. And then I'm back at the piano, or my accompanist is at the piano, and I'm standing at a podium, and we start working on the music. And we will look at specific spots that we've had troubles with, or sometimes we'll sing through a whole piece. We'll talk about texts. Yeah, just rehearsing. At that point, getting ready for concerts. The bell rings, and the students put their music away, and that happy chatting resumes, and I am always aware that I would say almost 100% of the time, students leave the rehearsal happier than when they came in, because that's what singing does for us, especially singing in a group. So that's a typical rehearsal. I see myself as a facilitator, and I want to make space for other people to shine. And if my singers shine, so to speak, I feel happy and fulfilled. And I feel like I know my role. My role and my job is to communicate with students and audiences the intent of a lyricist or a poet and the intent of a composer. I allow myself the space to bring in my own interpretation and my own experiences, but I also want to make space for students to bring their own interpretations and their own experiences and for the audience to do the same when they're listening. What people might not realize if they haven't been in a choir is that a choir is a lot more than just singing. It's community. We're a team. In addition, it's very serious academic work, and a lot of people don't realize that. Also in education, it's not always acknowledged. Music brings everything together. And thinking about a school environment, music brings together language, literature, mathematics, physics, biology, sport, psychology, history, culture. It's kind of all there. I think that not everybody realizes that, but anybody who has sung in a choir definitely knows that. I will share a quick story about Wayne. Wayne came to me. Uh, I wanted to, desperately to be in the choir. And so I listened to Wayne. And when I would sing, I, Wayne, repeat after me. Ah, that was me. Here's Wayne. Ah, Wayne, <laughs> do you think you sang what I sang? Yeah, I think so. Hmm. Okay, this is going to be a lot of work. So, Wayne, sing after me. Ah. Here's Wayne. Ah. Wayne, did you sing what I sang? Yeah, I'm pr pretty sure I did. Okay, so Wayne was in the choir. And Wayne knew at some point, because I, I helped him to learn, no, Wayne, you are not singing what I'm singing. Let's record both of us. Listen, do you hear the same thing? Oh, I guess I don't. So Wayne came to me once a week after school for a private voice lesson. And at some point I got Wayne to be able to sing five separate pitches. They were all very low. 
it was a progress. And then Wayne announced to me one day he wanted to go to solo an ensemble competition and sing a solo and get a rating from a judge. And I thought, okay, how do we survive this one? Wayne never, ever gave up. And that's what I admired so much about this, this young man. He continued to come to after-school voice lessons with me. And we slowly, painfully slowly, increased his range half step by half step. And I found a piece of music that was very simple and quite low. And then I transposed it so it was even lower. <laughs> was it, it from like a Nepalese throat singer? <laughs> No, it was a little folk song, and I don't even remember what it was, but I transposed it down into the basement so that it was within Wayne's range and actually utilized the five or six notes that Wayne could sing and didn't go beyond that range. So off Wayne went to solo competition, and when he went into this this room and sang for a judge, of course, I wasn't there. I had no idea what happened, but he came out. And how'd it go, Wayne? Oh, I think it went pretty well. Good. The scores came back out of uh, one being the highest, I think five or six being the lowest possible. Wayne got a three. Wayne and I were both very happy with that. And so <laughs> I consider that a triumph for myself and for Wayne as well. I think the story about Wayne was really sweet. I think so too. I totally had to include that story. It illustrates so much about what Joseph does and why he's so good at it. Is he going to be my music teacher one day? If you stick around the Kennedy School for a few more years, he'll be your teacher. I'm definitely sticking around the Kennedy School then. Yeah? Is he going to be your reason for staying? Yeah, probably. Well, I know I have another colleague that's going to keep you coming back for more. Your friend and mine, Mr. Nate Calhoun. You got to love that guy, right? Yeah, you have to love Nate. Now, Nate was your sport teacher a couple years ago, right? Yeah, he was. Do you have a favorite game that you played in his class? Uh, Pin Thief or Steel Pins. He talked about that in our podcast. Seriously? Yeah, it's not one of the excerpts I chose to air on the highlights reel, but he definitely talked about it. Nate's a dear friend of mine. I love him like the brother I never had. Daddy, you have a brother. You just talked about him a few minutes ago. (laughs) Touché. I adore Nate Calhoun. And he and I got into some pretty heavy stuff in this podcast conversation we had. Again, it's totally worth listening to my whole conversation with Nate. And again... I had to make some difficult decisions, and I'm really grateful to be able to share a couple clips from our conversation. I listened to the whole episode. Which clips did you choose? How about you stick around and see? Okay, sure. Then roll it. I know that you want to promote collaboration and cooperation, but to some degree and in some way, you're trying to promote competition. You want them out there doing their best, competing, trying to win. I think we both realize that there is both hope and danger in competition, broadly speaking, and competition among young people in particular. 
So with that as sort of a framework, can you talk a little bit about the role of competition in your elementary school sport classes? I mean, you're going to learn lessons, life lessons that are going to be pivotal in your development through adolescence and adulthood through competition. I think that's safe to say. So is it an integral part of the learning experience in sports and, and physical education? Yes. But should it be at the center? Absolutely not. I think that some of the lessons that could be taught through competition or that I do teach through competition are accountability, teamwork. Leadership is something that is, is important. One of the bigger things I think that children can learn through competition is conflict resolution. Yes. Sometimes when we compete, our emotions get the best of us. Yes. <laughs> as we previously stated, not many of us in life enjoy losing. So this gives me an opportunity to come in in an educational sense and really help students resolve the conflict. And surprisingly enough, a lot of kindergartners, first graders, second graders don't have the tools necessary to resolve the conflict themselves. And that's part of also what I teach and what I do. A lot of my job revolves around conflict resolution and learning to do that through classroom management has been a difficult process. Yeah, um, I bet. 15 years in the profession has allowed me to get better at it. I'm still working on it, but it is, uh, it's a big part of my job, conflict resolution and problem solving. What have you learned about conflict resolution through your decade and a half of working with young people? You're not always going to get the outcome that you desire. And there may be times where you have to table the discussion for a day or two and revisit it. And that can be difficult for me as an educator because I want results now, you know, I don't know. Like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think pumping the brakes, taking your time, allowing the children to do it themselves is the ultimate goal for me. And they have to embrace it, be involved in the resolution. And if it's not student led, then we're going to fall into the same hole in another day or two or a week or two or a month or two or a year that's going to come back up because we're not really resolving anything if it's not student led. So you really have to take a great leap of faith in our young students vis-a-vis -vis their perspicacity to resolve their own conflicts. You can create the space for them. You can create the time for them. But ultimately, if I'm hearing you right, it's on them to resolve their conflicts. Absolutely. I mean, it takes facilitation from us as educators in order to help them and to navigate that conversation with them so that they can do it in a way that makes both people feel comfortable and most importantly, safe. Hey man, can you talk a little bit about the social environment that you're trying to create in the sport hall? Well, as we have already established, you know, creating the safe space, that's where we start. And then once we're in that space, how do we continue to develop it? Socially, students need to be able to perform without fear. And that in and of itself 
is challenging and leads to an, a lot of lessons that I can teach. But unfortunately, sometimes it's in a child's nature to not filter what they say. It just comes out. It comes across in a negative way. And unfortunately, some children hold on to those negative thoughts for a long time. And we see it happen in sport class on a weekly basis where someone makes a comment about someone else and then the person is anxious about performing. There is a certain amount of performance anxiety that comes with participating in sport class. I think it can be very difficult for children of different genders to perform in front of one another. It's a difficult part of the job, making everyone feel safe. And there are going to be moments where people don't necessarily feel safe because of what someone has said. But that goes back to conflict resolution and stepping in as a teacher and enjoying that aspect of the learning process, really. I think I take pride in that. And I have really put an emphasis on the effect of learning in the classroom and the social and emotional learning that takes place. If you're an early educator right now, if you're starting off your career, really put an emphasis on that, especially if you're a sport teacher, because we we're lucky in the sense that we are able to teach these lessons, these life lessons that children are going to use when they're applying for a job, whether it be 15, 25 or 35 years old, when the students meet adversity in life, whether it's sticking to a workout plan or loss, dealing with loss of a loved one. You know, these are all coping skills that we can teach in sport. These are going to be skills that they're going to continue to develop in other subject areas. I think it's our job as educators to foster these skills that will last a lifetime. I want to dive into two things that you said. The first of which is just sort of a feeling that I'm getting. I have the sense in listening closely to you that sport itself is adjacent to, perhaps even secondary to, what you're actually trying to teach. Like that sport is the conduit you use. It's the platform that you have to teach young people that they have a safe space and that this space is one in which they can cultivate all sorts of skills, some of which are physical, most of which kind of aren't. How, how truthy is that statement? Oh, you hit the nail on the head 100%. I could not agree with you more. I can't help but fathom that that's why you are a virtual celebrity among the younger students at our school, because that is precisely why you're there. You are there and they sense or perhaps intuit or otherwise know that you are there to help them to grow and to develop and to become more full and rich and happier people. The memories that come to me when I reflect on sports and my involvement in sports growing up really have more to do with these life lessons, with these skills that I'm trying to pass on and teach to my students than it does with specific moments in the game or winning or losing or 
when I reflect, I think about the camaraderie. I think about the moments that were spent off the court more so than I do on the court and just learning how to become a man and the coaches that help foster that experience for me. I imagine that you're sort of eternally grateful to those who help to walk you through some of those difficult lessons. And I also imagine that a lot of our students are going to be eternally grateful that you're sort of carrying that torch. I just want to note that you know, I almost came to tears a moment ago when I started reflecting and thinking about some coaches and teachers. Because I actually recently reached out to two educators on Facebook. My fourth grade, third and fourth grade teacher, Ms. Johnson, her and then my assistant basketball coach and high school coach again. I wrote them both recently to express my gratitude and their public service and just to say, hey, look, I, I don't know if you'll read it, but I feel it's very important to share that you had a positive impact on my life. All right, I'm going to confess to you that until a decade or so ago, I was probably one of those people who maybe gave sport teachers a bad rap, right? Like they don't have to grade as many essays as I do. So they got it easy was basically my foolhardy argument. But for the last decade or more, as you know, I spend some time in the sport hall. If I have some free time, I'll go to the gym, work out a little bit. And I really like to watch the sport classes. I like to watch you work and some of your colleagues work. I think what happens in the sport hall is very special. And one thing that I am constantly reminded of when I'm in the weight room with the door closed is how debilitatingly loud <laughs> sport classes are. And most of it is the sound of students screaming with joy and screaming with happiness. Like it's the sound of very happy kids. It's a ghastly sound, coach. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> yeah. And I think your job is really hard, not just because it's loud, but because it's also really dangerous. You have a lot of young people who basically don't have control over their bodies. There are accidents that happen probably daily and serious accidents that happen with some frequency. It seems to me that your job is really loud and stressful and dangerous. And frankly, it seems objectively more difficult than mine. I don't know if I have a question. I think I just wanted to <laughs> <laughs> express my, uh, my sympathy and my empathy. No, perhaps I do have a question. How do you grapple with the noise and the danger and the sheer euphoria of it all? I would challenge anyone to spend a week in our shoes. <laughs> I really would. Um, you know, I signed up for this. There's no doubt in my mind, it is a very high stress. And what we don't do in terms of grading at home, I think we have to get home and decompress. I mean, it is high stress, noise, there's danger for the students as well as the teachers. It's not an easy job. 
But again, I signed up for this and I enjoy what I do. The noise level alone. I anticipate at 38 years old, in the next 10 to 15 years, I will probably need hearing aids at some point. I, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm losing my hearing and I am confident that teaching young children and them enjoying themselves in the sport hall has played into that. The, the deafening joy <sighs> of children. And you think about like the parents who have like one or two or three kids at home and they're like, keep it down, this is impossible. <laughs> and you have like 22 of them. And it's overwhelming, isn't it? Absolutely. And not to mention... Most PE teachers were athletes growing up and committed themselves and their lifestyle to a life of sports. So you take that into consideration, any injuries they may have had leading up to their career as a physical educator, sport teacher. Now we're prolonging that career in a sense in terms of standing on our feet the whole day. And as you've already stated, there are times that accidents occur in the sport hall involving the teacher. In that sense, it's dangerous from a health perspective. We signed up for this. We know what we signed up for. We do it as best we can, but it's a factor and you have to consider it and know that at some point in time, these injuries are going to come back around. And I know a handful of sport teachers who have entered their late 40s, 50s, early 60s and had a hip replacement or a knee replacement. And it's just something that you have to be aware of in this field. Well, and just to build on that a little bit, after that knee replacement or the hip replacement, they have to come back to work eventually. And they still have to stand and they still have to take a knee to button some kid's jacket a thousand times a week. <laughs> and it's so clearly physically and psychologically stressful. Can I just ask one kind of pointed question about that? Sure. You know, I'll hang out with my daughter and her buddies and we'll take, you know, three or five kids out and we'll go run around somewhere. And I feel like the slow burning impact of the stress that I feel manifest from the fear that I have that someone else's kid could get hurt on my watch is exhausting. And then I think about you and your work and I magnify that. Can I just ask like, how do you deal with the accumulated stress of that? It's definitely not easy. I've had my fair share of sleepless nights knowing that one of my students was injured, but I would like to tell you a story. My first experience with a, what I will call a major injury, which was a broken bone in the arm around the wrist. So living in Germany, gymnastics is still a big part of the sport curriculum. We were using this vaults, the springboards, and I had a student who was jumping over a horse. The student planted his hands on the horse. I was there to spot him, but he slipped through my grip and I saw the impact of his hand on the gymnastics mat. And I knew right away from the bulge in the wrist that I thought it was broken, but the bulge 10 minutes later disappeared and we weren't sure. But my recommendation was to the mother to take him to the hospital immediately because in my gut, I felt that he had broken his wrist and she did so. And the whole night I was worried and stressing and I could not get the student out of my mind. And how could this happen? I, you know, I, I was there. I, why couldn't I catch him? And the next day, I'll never forget this moment. The mother baked me a cake. And that was part of the fear as, a, as an early educator. I was worried, you know, this happened on my watch. 
the parents had a right to be mad at me. How could I let this happen? At least in my mind, that's how I felt. And to see the, the sheer gratitude that she had and, and yeah, she was very appreciative. That's cool, man. I was kind of desperately afraid that the story was going to go in the other direction, but I'm glad that you got the community support that you deserve in this case. And I'd imagine that that's just one of dozens of stories. I see you nodding your head. It's just part of the job, right? And whether it's a kid that literally slips through your hands or it just happens on your watch, you just have to live with the constant fear, I guess, right? Yeah, it's not easy. It's certainly a challenge of the job. But as we teach our students to grow and to learn, it's something that you have to learn to cope with. It's definitely not going to make you a better educator if you're going to have sleepless nights and you're going to stay up thinking about this. You have to learn how to move on from these issues as an educator in order to become the best version of yourself that you can. I guess I just kind of hope for you that despite the stresses, you're able to find a lot of joy in your work because I know how much joy you bring to the lives of our students. Again, one of whom is my daughter who wanted to ask you this here question. Hi, Nate. It's me again. What do you like most about your job? It's exciting. There is never a dull moment. And the fact that I get to work with beautiful children every day, five days a week, is really rewarding. And I mean that wholeheartedly. This isn't just something that I would say. Working with children, especially young children, is a very rewarding job. I think there's so many life lessons that we can teach using sports. And I'm lucky to be a sport teacher. Nate totally loves his job. You can definitely tell. Yeah, if you go back and you listen to that whole conversation, you'll definitely get an appreciation for how and why Nate loves his job so much. And as you know, Maddie, uh, he's going to miss that job, isn't he? Yeah, before Christmas break, he told all the kids in swimming that his daddy's sick, so he has to move back home for a little while. I'm going to miss that, dude. Me too. Well, how about this? If you're listening to this and you used to be one of Nate's students, or if you have a kid who was in Nate's class, I know it would ease the pain a little bit if you could shoot him an email. That's nate.calhoun at jfksberlin.org. Shoot our man an email. Say thanks. Tell him you're going to miss him. Give him a little bit of love. He definitely deserves it. Right, baby girl? Of course he deserves it. He's a very good teacher. Sweet guy too, right? Yeah. So that's going to do it for part one of the season six highlights reel. How do you think we did? I think we did really good. I think you did real good. I mean, this is probably going to take a lot of editing, but we did better than last time. (laughs) You know, I went back and I listened to the last highlights reel that we did together. And your voice sounds so much younger. It was six months ago, but it sounds like... I'm a totally different person. Kinda? I don't know if I'd go that far, but you sound great, girl. Thank you. And I don't think it's going to take that much editing. You were real on point today. Thanks. You're welcome. 
Hey, are you down to do the back half of the season in a couple weeks? Of course. Okay, we'll put it in the calendar and we'll get it done. I love you, buddy. Thanks for doing this. I love you too, and you're welcome again. <laughs> Say bye to the people. Bye to the people!